Hello and welcome back to the Master Engineering Podcast. I am, as always, your host, Sotak Andre, and you're listening to episode 41, which is a special one, first and foremost because it's Christmas, so Merry Christmas to all of you, and uh, this is going to be, I guess, my Christmas gift for you. And uh, the second reason why this is a special episode is because I finally have Eric Helms on the podcast. Now, uh, as you will hear in the intro, Eric has been one of my earliest influences. He actually has been the second influence, if you want to be very specific, after Matt August. So he has been sort of the first person I started following from the quote-unquote evidence-based community. And through him, I then start, you know, discovering the rest of the people that you've heard on the, the podcast, uh, guys like Lyle McDonald or Mike or Greg Knuckles and so on and so forth. So in this episode, we cover what I consider to be the most important uh, side of bodybuilding and just, you know, life in general, which is the psychology of it. The rest of the details, you know, the calories and the sets and all that stuff are honestly worthless if your mind isn't in the right spot. So we cover a lot of ground here. We covered, um, you know, gym motivation, sort of why people get into lifting or why they might quit the gym, how to manage social media and this uh, sort of a pressure that we put on ourselves to look a certain way, this, you know, sort of, Keeping up with the Joneses phenomenon, and we also cover the highly sensitive but still very much relevant subject of steroids. So I think there is something here for everyone. Um, I think there is a lot of um, gems to take away from this episode. It has been, like I said, one of my personal favorites. Eric has just knocked it out of the park, and it has been amazing talking to him. So enjoy episode 41 of the Muscle Engineering Podcast with Dr. Alec Helms. Eric, it's a pleasure to have you on. Thank you for joining me. Oh, it's a pleasure to be on. Thank you for having me. You know, I think I I, I always like to I like to start off with these, especially with people who I've followed for a long time to sort of give them my my respect and you know the give them give credit where credit is due. And I think I told this story somewhere, but you were basically the second person I started following, I think. So the first one was Matt August in the whole evidence-based community. I mean, um, I sort of came across his prep files from 2011, which I mm. think you helped him with uh, in 2012. And then I remember you did sort of a Q&A session, and I vividly remember you being in this white shirt, and you were licking ice cream, answering questions. So <laughs> that's, I don't know if you even remember that, but that's how far 100%. back this whole goes. So That's really cool, man. Well, I'm honored to hear that. And yeah, yeah, it was it was pretty cool. I still remember uh, getting, I think, calling, calling Matt Ogus in, it would have been early 2011, uh, maybe even late 2010 before then. And just kind of talking to him about his needs as a bodybuilder and then him deciding to come on as a 3DMJ athlete and me coaching him through his 2011 season. And then the whole world of like progressive overload and, uh, and, and energy balance was, was new to him and made a huge difference for him. And then he started to truly carry that message on to his followers and 
asked me to to sit down and random off-season uh, lunches after we trained and and talk about uh, everything. So that that, that was a my, my first real exposure to, I guess you could call YouTube a social media platform these days. But back then, I didn't even realize how big it was going to be or or how big it was. So that's pretty cool, man. Yeah, it's it was definitely early days, but um, we've come a long way since. So it's awesome to now be able to, you know, have a sit down with you and pick your brain for for an hour or so. It's awesome. My pleasure, man. Thanks for thanks for bringing that up. It's cool to hear that. All right. So today I want to talk about something more important than macros and calories, which is as unbelievable as that might be for some people. <laughs> it's not really. Uh, the most important aspect of, of the whole bodybuilding thing, I think the most important one is the psychology behind it and sort of, you know, keeping our heads straight. And I think you are a very invaluable guest in that regard because I, you went <laughs> you went through pretty much everything like you were the hardcore bodybuilder. You experienced some of the not so pleasant consequences of bodybuilding preps, which I also want to get into a bit later. Mm. So I think you can offer some very, very cool insights, of course, combined with your latest prep, which was pretty much the opposite of how some of the earlier ones went. Um, Now to start off, I would like to ask you, I'm sure you told this story previously, I'm sure I heard it, but I don't remember. So I'll ask you like, what was the original motivation behind getting into, you know, bodybuilding and just lifting weights and I guess, you know, to sort of tie this whole into, tie this back into a more general topic, like what do you think, what do you notice the general um, reason why people start lifting weights uh, is, and do you think that has shifted over the years, let's say from when you started lifting to maybe more like uh, the current era, so to speak? Mm. So for me, it was about... um finding a little more control in my life and I was towards the tail end of my Air Force enlistment this was 2004 I got out in 05 Um, and I went through a pretty stressful time in my life I was in a long distance relationship and I didn't have the ability to uh, travel at that time because of the specific logistics of my uh, assignment and there was basically some some red tape that said uh, during this this period of this assignment, I couldn't take leave. And it was during a time period in that relationship where I really needed to go home and I couldn't. Um, And I needed some outlets for some relatively uh, just rough stuff in my life and in, in in the life of that relationship. And I didn't have an outlet. So fortunately, instead of turning long term to more negative outlets, um, I hit up my buddy Patrick and said, hey, man, I know you lift weights. You do the whole bodybuilding thing. Can you can you show me the ropes? And uh, I remember I was even playing with the idea of getting into boxing or something like that. So I didn't know what I wanted. I just wanted something hard, something challenging, and something that could be my thing. And I don't think I even was able to articulate it at that point. I just saw it as an outlet. And it started as a very um, obsessive and kind of uh, almost masochistic uh, kind of approach. And I liked that it was hard. I liked that it was painful because it gave me kind of that, that outlet as a catalyst for processing my emotions. Um, I don't know how well I could have, like I said, articulated all that at the time, but the experience at the time was I needed an outlet and I got bit by the iron bug and there was no turning back. So, um, 
that was that was my first exposure to it and it you know it changed from that over time i think like any relationship whether it's with a person or a practice um your reasons and your whys will will shift over time and and uh, hopefully it's something that you realize you want to stick with in this case being a potentially healthy behavior um so that that's me um and then eventually it just became whenever I, I think you, you, you mesh that experience with my personality and my personality is one where when I find something that I enjoy, I go all in and it becomes something I, I, I think about 24 seven, I obsess about it. And, uh, if, you know, I was that way with video games, which was a problem, I, I was that way with, um, pretty much anything in life that I really, really enjoyed. So, um, it's probably no surprise now that I have. My, my entire academic career isn't focusing on that. My uh, my actual career itself is is focusing on that. As an athlete, uh, I'm still very heavily uh, involved, and um, it's also something that I think about as far as a a way of finding meaning and expressing yourself in life. So anyway, that's that part of the question. The second part of the question as to whether I think people still get into lifting for that reason, I think people still stick with lifting for the same reason. You know, there's a reason why getting bitten by the iron bug is kind of a, a thing that people say. Um, because even if you come to it initially because you want to look better for the opposite sex or um, because uh, you have social pressure from the from Instagram to, to, to look better, like that's, social pressure hasn't changed in in, in its root cause and, and the that root feeling. It's been amplified and the frequency of exposure has gone up on Instagram and social media and maybe even the expectations uh, have have risen um, but I don't think that's enough to sustain most people you know um, shame and social pressure hasn't fixed the obesity epidemic yet so I doubt it's going to make um, you know people really stick with with serious bodybuilding or weightlifting and I think uh, you, so what, what initially gets you to lift weights and what makes you stay with it are two different things. Because I actually did start lifting weights. Um, I took a weightlifting class my last year of high school. And I had a buddy in high school, I think my either my junior or senior year when I was 16 or 17, who was a like a teenage phenom bodybuilder who I trained with, who lived in the same apartment complex as me. And we trained together for like a month and I just didn't like it, you know. So for me, I needed to have that the experience of lifting weights at the time where I also needed an outlet for to kind of really put its hooks in me. Um, so I think if I'd gotten into it because I wanted to be, you know, like hot for girls or something like that, um, which of course every teenager gets wrong, um, then I, I don't think I would have stuck with it either, either way. So it really took something... Uh, that, that personally invested me emotionally to, to stay with it. Mm -hmm. Very interesting. Uh, you know, it's funny because um, <laughs> I actually got into uh, lifting sort of in a very, for a similar, very similar reason. Um, my first girlfriend actually dumped me in late 2010, I think. And sort of, you know, early 2011, I sort of started lifting weights because I had this idea in my mind that she probably dumped me because I was chubby. And <laughs> I told myself, listen, I will I will never ever feel this. Like, I won't ever split up with a girl and then wonder, was it because I was, you know, too fat for her liking or something like that? And basically, I went to this, to this buddy of mine who had some weights around and I sort of had a very similar outlet, so or I viewed it, viewed it as an outlet. Uh, you know, I was just angry and 
upset <laughs> upset over this whole situation so i just started you know lifting weights and he had a uh, bag so we started hitting the bag and stuff just you know just to let my anger out so i can definitely relate to that it's funny how uh how that works and uh, i think i managed actually to <laughs> accomplish that in a sense because i since then i haven't really thought about it but whether i when i broke up with someone that probably wasn't because of the way i look so in a sense i think <laughs> i managed to achieve that yeah it's funny what can bring us to something and how it can change you know i had a uh, a reasonably unhealthy relationship with bodybuilding initially um because it was me expressing um you know dealing with, with with some trauma in my life but uh now it's something that i i absolutely love and it 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 gives me balance and and more focus and, and, and direction so yeah i totally understand and uh, since you brought up, brought up this topic i wanted to ask your opinion about it like why do you think that is that most people quit the gym after a couple of months basically like um i work in a gym so i know how that is like i constantly see people who you know they pay their monthly membership and see them maybe maybe in the first week and then they never show up again or perhaps they do show up for a month, then they disappear, then they start again next year and so on. Like I've known people for like four to five years who combine maybe have six months of, of actual training in those uh, four to five years. Why do you think that is and what what differentiates the people who do stick with the gym uh, from the people who don't? Yeah, it's so simple. It's They don't like it. You know, it's, that's really all it is. Um, if, if someone doesn't enjoy training and they think they're supposed to do it to be healthy or to look a certain way or to to not be something they dislike, which is the most common thing. You know, gyms normally advertise themselves like they do in uh, dodgeball, like Globo Gym. Like, you're broken, come on in and get fixed, you know. And um, that's not really a, a great uh, motivator in and of itself. But more importantly, I just think people don't like it. Um, and the people who stick with it like it. I, I have had a number of clients, friends, family, etc., come up to me and just shake their head and go, you're just so disciplined. I can't imagine doing what you're doing. And my first thought is, I can't imagine not doing it. <laughs> like, this is my favorite part of the day, you know. Um, I've never successfully stayed on a three-day-per-week training program, um, even if I thought it might be appropriate at a given time, just because I don't want to spend, uh, you know, four out of seven days out of the gym. So I'm almost always on a four to six day per week training program. And I've even played with training every day. Um, you know, I remember back in the day having like a, an abs, calves and forearm day just so I can get in the gym, you know. Um, so I think that's that's the big difference. And um, some people might hear that and go, oh, damn. Well, I guess if I'm not, you know, a guy who or a gal who just loves lifting weights that I'm it's not going to work for me. But I think there's actually a really important message there is that. If you're someone who's trying to adopt a lifestyle that includes uh, fitness, and it doesn't need to be like hardcore weightlifting, bodybuilding, like 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 me or you, um, but just being active, it's so incredibly important for life and fitness and health uh, that if you can find something that you do get excited about every day, that you think about on the days you're going to go to that activity, whether it's intramural softball or swimming or uh, hiking, it doesn't matter. Uh, it's just so important to find that. And if you think that something you don't like, that you dread, that you feel like you're supposed to do, is going to sustain you to go do it like three or four days a week. I mean, people miss their annual dental appointments. 
Like that's, you need to be there one day out of the year. Uh, and people miss it because they don't like the dentist. And you can expect them to be there three days per week at least, uh, even though they don't like the gym. I just think it's not a, not a realistic expectation. And, uh, you know, that's, that just goes to show you how, um, how short-term and how temporary uh, willpower is. Like, yeah, it, you can make yourself do something, for, like you said, for a couple months at most. But, you know, you're human. Eventually, you're just going to stop doing it. Um, and some of the, some of that's the initial uncomfortability of developing a habit, but you, you're not going to develop a habit you really, really don't like at all. At least it needs to be neutral. You know, like for example, we all brush our teeth, but we don't think about it. We don't have an, a negative, I, don't, I would say I'll speak for myself. I don't have a negative feeling about brushing my teeth. I don't like or dislike it. It's just something I do. Um, and I guess you can get there with lifting, but it's really difficult as an adult when, you know, you're not starting at three years old. So it becomes this, uh, you know, this habit that's just part of your life for forever. Um, it's something you're trying to adopt as an adult. And that means you're probably going to have to make it attractive to you and something you enjoy and find a way to integrate it with your life so that it's not, uh, this, just this chore. That's why diets fail. And that's why, uh, training fails because people, uh, do something they, that they don't like pretty simply. Yeah, it's uh, so simply put yet so true. Now, uh, you know, I wonder, like, I remember initially, like, I am not particularly gifted. I was not good at picking up exercises initially. Um, I think that's why I I would say so that that makes me actually a pretty good trainer or coach because I had to think, you know, so much about each exercise or how to set up for a particular body part and uh, it wasn't it was never something that just you know came to me naturally so I, or I initially sucked at it and I was very weak but um, I sort of had this idea in my mind that listen if I just quit now then I won't end up looking any better and I will not feel better about myself either so I just you know I kept going and initially uh, over time it sort of this transformed into actually you know, starting to suck less and enjoying the whole process. Um, do you think that that initial um, disdain or not liking the particular thing can be shifted over time? Because I personally think that a very big part or large part of it is simply people, while well, I think, go into it with the wrong expectations and perhaps, you know, they don't really know what to do and that also is a turn off. And simply the way gyms are set up, it's not like a group class or, you know, not all, not everyone are forced to, to hire a personal trainer who can work with them one-to-one. So they're sort of, you know, uh, left with asking uh, other guys or girls, you know, they what they do. And that's pretty much how we started. Like we just went to guys and just monkey see monkey do basically we just copy others and <laughs> pick things up along the way um so do you think or how much time do you think let, let's ask it this way how much time do you think someone should give this uh, whole fitness or weightlifting thing before they decide that it's not for them yeah i mean that's a, that's a good point is that um initially depending on what your expectations are you make you may might make gains that are faster slower or you don't feel like you're making any gains compared to what you expect. Um, and I think that all depends on what, what brings you into it. Um, I was reading muscle magazines with all the IFPB pros on the front. So um, I remember Berto and I talking, and this is after we'd actually, you know, 
or we were at least prepping for our first show. I can't remember if we had hadn't already done it or maybe it was 2008 after it. And he told me, you know, you know, one day, like and we, we knew we were going to stay natural. You're going to be 220 pounds on stage. And that seemed very reasonable to me. You know, I'm six foot and there are six foot natural bodybuilders who are 20, 220 pounds on stage. Um, they're just not going to be named Eric Helms. You know, <laughs> it's just not me, you know. Um, and uh, so I had even even as before I realized what natural bodybuilding was, and even once I knew what natural bodybuilding was, I had unrealistic expectations from the start. Um, but I was very, very motivated to work hard, and you know, I did a number of, of dreamer bulks along the, along the way, and um, I expected to, to get greater gains than I did. Um, but even when I was not getting the gains I'd hoped for, um, I got enough progress that it was still motivating, and the uh, the idea of, okay, well, back to the drawing board was actually exciting for me. So I know for me, I gamified it in my head. You know, um, each time I, I, do, I couldn't get what I wanted, I saw it as, oh, let me figure out what I need to do to actually make progress. And I think some people uh, see it as a little too linear. Like, here's what I did. It didn't work. I don't like this. Um, and... I think in some ways, understanding that the complexity and there's so much to learn is actually helpful in that way. Because when I had times where I couldn't just be stronger on a very simplistic or unnecessarily complicated, but I'll just say a beginner program, whatever I was doing at the time when I couldn't make progress, I had the awareness to know that there were other things I could try. There's other ways to set it up. And there was almost an infinite number of programs or I could eat more. I could try higher protein or I could buy a supplement. You know, I had all these options in front of me as ways to potentially get around this plateau. Um, and I think that's a useful piece of, piece of knowledge. It can also be a little uh, discouraging because there's so much out there. Um, but the difference between me and someone who might quit, I think was, you know, if you're not doing it for reasons that have like intrinsic value and you're not actually enjoying it, you don't want to try other stuff. You just want to be like, would someone just tell me what to do? I just want the program that works. Like, that's just what I wanted. Like, what what works and I'll do it, you know? But if you have no interest in trying to figure that out, trying to find it out, and if you don't enjoy that process of actually um, trying to figure yourself out and realizing that you're kind of this end of one organic machine that is genetically unique on the planet and your environment and your mind, your psychology, all that interacts together. And that means that there's going to be a program right now that might work for you or doesn't. And then guess what? When you find a program that does work for you, as you adapt it'll stop working for you. And now you're a different combination of things because you're an adaptive machine and you got to find something else out uh, or fix a new problem or keep looking inward and trying this whole process of uh, self-discovery and self-reinvention. So if that's not something that you can get hooked into, you're probably going to quit. So I think, I think that's important. And I, so I think going into it and not knowing what to do and starting with monkey see monkey do is actually really an important step of the way. And it can look a little more sophisticated. It might be, you know, these days I, I've I, I met people who their first exposure to how to lift weights might be someone in the quote-unquote evidence-based community, which was super rare when I got into it. And it's super cool. Um, but that's still essentially the same thing. You know, you might start with reading a book by or watching a video by someone. And it's actually quite good information, but it's only going to work for you as long as it works. And you might need to modify it or figure it out. Um, and... I think if you enjoy that process, that's when you know the hooks are in you. But a lot of people who are simply just 
look, all I want is a means to an end versus actually enjoying that means uh, and being involved in that process are probably not going to stick with it. Hey guys, I interrupt the episode to remind you that as much as I love making these episodes, they do not pay the bills coaching does for me. So if you'd be interested in working with me in a one-to-one fashion, I also offer online coaching for a limited number of clients interested in uh, body composition optimization. So if you'd like to lose fat, build muscle, or any combination of the two, then uh, don't hesitate to reach out to me via an email. My email address is always in the description of these episodes and we can chat further from there. I am also available for 30 or 60 minute consultations for people who are not quite ready to invest into a full-on coach just yet. Thank you and let's continue the episode. Um, You know, I've been thinking uh, when you were saying about you know expectations and stuff like I always tell youngsters so to speak in the gym like I'm so old it sounds so pretentious of me <laughs> but you know maybe 18 19 euros uh, stuff like that that they are so in a much more favorable position like even like in the gym itself like they have me they have a colleague of mine who is a uh, he just won the European uh, IMBA championship got his PMBA pro card so uh, he's also a very, very high level, re- re- relatively speaking, high level natural bodybuilder. And uh, they definitely have who to learn from. And we are also much more open and much more willing to give advice than what we were, we sort of received um, back when we started. But at the same time, they are also in a harder position because, you know, at worst, I compare myself with someone who was a big guy at the gym, like, we barely had Facebook, I think. There was no Instagram. <laughs> like, I, I didn't have an entire world to compare myself to. So I think in, in that sense, it's also a blessing and a curse to have all kinds of you know fitness influencers available at your fingertip, basically. And you have an entire world to get inspired by, but also get sort of demotivated by, in a sense, because you you get into this endless spiral of just, you know, comparing yourself to others and feeling like you never really you will never be good enough basically so you can sort of get into this uh, paradigm sort of in the whole you know instagram sphere or culture like how should people think about this whole comparison thing where is the line where how do you view the line between being motivated or following others because you draw inspiration or motivation from them and you know they push you to become a better version of yourself versus feeling inadequate or feeling like I'm never going to look like my favorite Instagram celebrity. Mm-hmm. I think that's a, a really good question. And um, I think two things need to occur. You need to be self-aware and you need to be intentional. Um, because like I said before, I don't think things have fundamentally changed with social media. I think it's become an accelerant and a catalyst. Um, and there's a saying that, that comparison is the thief of joy. <laughs> yeah. And I think it's a very, very true saying if you don't have uh, that intention and that self-awareness. Um, so let me give you an example. And this is something that uh, my friend and colleague and my uh, client, uh, Bryce Lewis, has talked about a lot publicly. Um, so though, for those who don't know, Bryce Lewis is a... Uh, a world champion IPF lifter in the 105 class. He won 2018 Worlds. 
he got silver at 2017 Worlds, and he's won uh, USAPL Nationals, which is arguably the most competitive uh, drug-free raw powerlifting meet in the world in his class three times now. Um, and he has an unofficial world record in the total. Um, he's totaled over 900 kilos as a 105 drug-free raw lifter, which is just in mind-blowingly insane. Um, and when Bryce Lewis gets ready for a competition, he has to stop following other lifters and not paying attention to it because he feels inadequate. So just, just so people understand, like your brain will find a way <laughs> to bring your insecurities forward so that even if you are literally uh, the, the strongest person in your competitive class, you know, whoever you're actually comparing to objectively, subjectively, you may not feel like that. So that's why intentionality is so important and self-awareness. Unfortunately, Bryce has both and you can absolutely use social media as a tool to enhance your motivation and to drive you forward. But if you're not paying attention and if your feed uh, becomes, has its own life, uh, it, that can definitely go, go wrong. So I think what I ask people to do is that you follow a lot of people because you, you say they inspire you or they're impressive or you like to look at their pictures. But I think you really need to ask yourself, well, how do I feel when I look at it? If I look at this, does it make me want to go to the gym? Does it make me feel like anything's possible? Does it get me excited to train? Or do I just feel inadequate? Um, and if the answer is more often than not, it's the latter, not the former, man, you probably just want to stop following that person. It's not necessarily their fault, you know. Um, I've uh, so, so here's an example that, that surprised me. Uh, for those that don't know, and I don't do it as much of late, but I need to get back into it. I post... I've gone through periods where on my Instagram, I posted a lot of pictures of uh, old school lifters. And when I say old school, I mean as far back as cameras existed. So, uh, you know, Indian physical culturists from 1930 or uh, vaudeville style uh, strongman era from the uh, 1800s or the Mr. America from 1939 uh, up until 1953. It's the pre-steroid era because I know I have a lot of natural bodybuilders following me and they want to see what kind of physiques have been developed prior to the, um, the invention of an application of bodybuilding of anabolic steroids. And most people are like, oh my God, this is incredible. Um, you know, how do we know for sure they, were, they weren't on gear? That's, that's so amazing. Um, but I did get a message from someone one time who said, man, that's so demotivating. This guy with 50 years uh, old information or 60 years old information um, not knowing how to track macros or blah, 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 whatever the stuff they believed was quote unquote optimal has developed a physique that, that I can never hope to get at the age of 19. And I, I was like, oh, that's an interesting perspective. Um, so I think you have to be aware of your own self-talk and your own perspective. And if that's the way you look at those things, then, then maybe it's, it's useful to put some blinders on, you know, um, early on in my career, I always needed to have this kind of belief uh, that, that, that there was, I, I could get really, really far in natural bodybuilding because um, I had a fear that I was inadequate, that I didn't have good genetics, that I wasn't able to build muscle very, very well. And I think that's all a reference points of who you compare yourself to, you know, and I was always looking to like other people who I saw myself one day competing against, you know, I like, I was comparing myself to Philip Ricardo Jr. or, or Jim Cordova um, or Martin Daniels, or, um, man, like, 
that was a little before Doug Miller's time at this time, but like I was looking at all the best natural bodybuilders on the planet. And same thing with powerlifting. I was looking up to people, you know, I was looking at Bryce. I started coaching him in 2010, uh, leading up to his first powerlifting meet. And we've competed in the same weight class and he's totaled literally 200 to 300 kilos more than, than I have in the same weight class. Um, and that's one way of comparing it. But here's an example of how we can see comparison as so inherently subjective. If I look at my total uh, compared to just the world, um, so for example, uh, some, some federations have class four, three, two, one master and elite level classifications. And back in the day, I think the American Powerlifting Association had that. I think the last time I looked at it was like 2012. Um, and USAPL did something similar and started doing it a, lot, a couple of years ago. Anyway, uh, class one uh, means that your total is stronger than 85% of the people who are, have registered a total in the organization. And at times I have been at class one or above class one in my weight class. You know, and now that the field's a little steeper, I'm not quite there yet anymore. Um, but the point is, is that objectively, among powerlifters, people who actually have decided to compete in powerlifting, I'm in the top, you know, ten to twenty percent, ten to twentieth percentile. That's that's objectively way more than adequate. You know, um, that's very strong. It doesn't make me world champion. It doesn't make me good enough to qualify for the Arnold or any of those things. But if that's my standard. That just goes to show you, you can always find a way to make your standard something that you haven't achieved yet and make yourself feel bad. So I think you have to be aware of uh, that your, your own goalposts will forever shift. So how do you take some control over that and some intentionality and actually seek out sources of motivation that drive you forward rather than make you feel like the goalpost is always just going to be just outside of your reach? Um, because even world champions feel that way. Um, so for me, I am very intentional with what I follow on social media. I'm self-aware. I sit down and have conversations with myself, figure out what my why is. And I have very intentionally shifted my focus from being extrinsically motivated to something more intrinsic. So instead of trying to be the best natural bodybuilder defined as winning WNBF Worlds or the Natural Olympia, uh, or trying to be the best powerlifter by winning IPF Worlds or winning USAPL uh, Raw Championships, um, Raw National, excuse me, I have focused on, all right, how do I improve? Uh, this is an individual sport. The only way that I'm going to beat anybody else is the same way that I simply just get better than where I was. So the only person I compare myself to is me. Um, but even more than that, now that I'm 36, I'll be 37 next year in April, uh, and I've got colleagues uh, around me who are you know, like Jeff Alberts, who just competed at WPF Worlds uh, at the age of 48. Um, we're starting to think about the very real possibility that we may no longer be able to be better than our previous self. You know, uh, typically your, your 40s and sometimes in cool, rare cases, your early 50s is where you stop making progress. You know, like there's some pretty amazing IPF lifters and natural bodybuilders who progress well into their 50s, like Marshall Johnson is an example. But anyway, I don't know when my clock will be up. And when I'm no longer making progress and I'm simply holding on to the strength or the physique I have and finding ways to, you know, make, make something a little bit better, like get a little bit leaner or pose a little bit better or get better color uh, or maintain more muscle during, during the prep process or, or mod modify my technique uh, because I can't necessarily uh, put on more muscle mass or refine my neuromuscular patterns. Uh, but there will come a time when I reach that point. 
And I think just like someone who is purely trying to hunt for the gold medal of the first place can achieve burnout uh, and look back and realize they spent 10 years working really hard, achieving amazing things, but uh, didn't enjoy it because they didn't get a gold medal. I think that can start to happen even when you uh, aren't focused on that and you're focused on beating yourself once you start trying to beat your age. And you see a lot of lifters who don't compete in the Masters 1 or Masters 2 class and they retire uh, when they still might enjoy lifting uh, and enjoy the competitive process if they could just reframe their perspective. Um, So I think finding meaning in whatever you're doing, especially something healthy like lifting uh, that, that, that gives you all these secondary benefits and that is a way for you to, like we talked about, it's an outlet for your emotional expression. I think you have to go through these stages of motivation, you know, starting perhaps with, if you're an athlete, extrinsic motivation and validation and achieving something outside of you to eventually trying to beat yourself to eventually just enjoying the process and enjoying lifting for lifting's sake. And I'm fortunate that I've gotten there. I I know for sure that I'll never not be lifting unless I have some kind of catastrophic injury that prevents me from doing it. And even then I'll find a way to do something. Um, But I think that is a an evolution of motivation that each person needs to go through if they're going to be lifting uh, for a lifetime. Yeah, I actually wanted to bring up that comparison, the Thief of Joy quote. I remember hearing it uh, from Elon Musk on Joe Rogan's podcast like a year ago, I think it was, because <laughs> I've seen some memes <laughs> that it was a year ago already. It's one of my favorites, actually. And uh, you're, you're so right. Like We were discussing this with Abel that... Um, like listen objectively speaking like you said yourself we both Abel and I like sort of we are quote-unquote bigger than most people we are more muscular than than most people yet we still you know compare ourselves with like you said the best of the best like we we compare ourselves with others who are six feet tall but who compete uh on the WMBF world stage perhaps who maybe have 10 kilos more muscle than we do and um, since you mentioned something about age, I originally didn't want to bring this up, but I now I have to ask you. I don't know if you've seen it. Um, Eric Salazar posted something about, you know, him being the product of, I don't know, 17 years, however long he's been lifting. And Lal commented that, no, you have been <laughs> the product of basically three to five years of lifting and then just sort of maintaining. And, you know, Lyle has this very pessimistic view, which partially he's right but also at the same time he isn't that you know you will put on um the majority of your muscle in the first three years maybe five if you're being generous but then past that point you're pretty much just scraping (laughs) around for more muscle and uh he sort of has this uh pessimistic view of the situation whereas abel and i view it from the other, other other point of view which is that yeah that's just reality but it is what it is. Now we just have to work that much harder. And yes, gains are going to slow down, but we can obviously still improve. Look at examples like Jeff, of course, is the best one, but others who are still improving beyond obviously those three to five years. Um, so where do you think, uh, or what is your, your opinion or where do you lie on this uh, continuum? Like how should people view the situation? Because I guess Lyle was originally his point was to not discourage lifters. Like he said that, for example, if a beginner comes to him, if he will tell him that, you know, you will need 
20 years to look at like, your favorite lifter, then <laughs> that guy will probably just won't even bother. But if you tell him that, listen, you'll probably need two to three years to build a very, very uh, good foundation, then that might be a bit more um, optimistic point of view. Yeah, I think most of these uh, arguments online are typically people talking across each other. <laughs> Um, you know, I know Eric, and he just got his uh, IPB Pro card. You know, as a natural bodybuilder, you know, which which actually happens a fair amount in people who compete in like the bantam or the lightweight class, and then they never go on to compete in, in the IPB Pro ranks. Or if they do, it's just for the experience. Um, there's tons of people who uh, are in those weight classes who are only who wouldn't wouldn't be there if they used anabolic steroids, and that's kind of the uh, the thing. And, uh, so anyway, the point being is that, um, I think Eric is looking back and going, Oh my God, I can't believe I achieved something that so few natural bodybuilders achieve. And it took me, you know, 20 years to get to it. And that's a true statement because whatever combination of learning physical changes, uh, and better approaches in the gym and in, uh, the kitchen allowed him to bring a physique to the stage that was good enough on that day to win um, did include 20 years of learning. It didn't include 20 years of muscle building, but that's not the point. And that's not necessarily the way he's reflecting and looking back. So who's the audience? Who are you talking to? If Eric is talking to a young up and coming person who wants to compete in bodybuilding and who wants to achieve the same heights and maybe who has a similar genetic hand or is going to stay natural, but potentially compete against those who are not, uh, then yeah, they need to know that it's not a sure thing and it might take you 20 years before you find the right combination of things that result in it. If someone comes up to Eric and they say, hey, I'd like to build some muscle. Uh, how do I get to you know a similar level of muscularity? I don't want to step on stage, but I really want to fill out my shirts better. And he goes, it's going to take you 20 years of grinding. <laughs> then yeah, that's then I think that that's probably where Lyle is coming from. So um, it just depends on who each one of them is talking to and what they're referring to. And um I would say that, yes, if you do everything right uh, and if you are not spending time off and on cutting or going on vacation and you have a, an optimal training program for you and an optimal nutrition plan um, and you are you know doing everything perfectly under the sun, yeah, I think probably at the five-year mark you will have built 99 point something percent of the muscle mass you'll have. Uh, but I don't know many situations even when that's true. Um, you could say, but what if you follow all the scientific principles? Like, well, these change. You know, like what we think is best is, is, is an evolutionary process, you know, that's because it's exercise science. So um, and the likelihood that you're going to not go on a mini cut somewhere along the way or not get hurt or uh, not go on vacation or, uh, you know, not go through a breakup and then stop lifting weights for six months. I think the reality is that it takes people closer to maybe 10 years to build all their muscle from doing things in a not necessarily optimal fashion, uh, maybe competing early. Like, you know, like for example, I got on stage for the first time in 2007. I started lifting weights in 04. I certainly hadn't built all my muscle mass by that point. And then I went through, you know, the disastrous uh, process of, of dieting down for a show, which is actually the worst thing you can do for how much muscle you could have short of not lifting weights anymore. <laughs> you know, you tank your testosterone, don't eat enough, mess up your sleep schedule, and then get a really unhealthy relationship with food in your body for a while that <laughs> takes you know, another six months to recover from, right? Um, so then I, and then I competed in 09, then I competed in 2011. So when I was getting close to that point of maybe where on paper I could have built my most amount of muscle mass, I was competing every other year. Um, 
and you know and then on and off competing in powerlifting where i wasn't able to complete the probably the amount of volume i needed and i remember still figuring out uh, a lot of the things about my body like my upper body needs more volume and more frequency to grow effectively uh you know if i do low bar squats with a high frequency it jacks up my hips you know i had to get hip surgery in in 2017 um so I mean, if you look back on my career, it's not that different from any other very, very, very serious lifter. There's a few injuries here and there. There might have been a surgery. Uh, you know, there's some competition preps. There's some burnout. Uh, there's some, you know, periods where things, because of the competition demands, are not ideal for competition, like in bodybuilding, et cetera, et cetera. So I think um, the reality is is that uh, there is no real optimal scenario where you gain those rates that we talk about to where you get there in five years. I think you can get close, but I think the reality is most people, even if they do everything right or most things right and objectively they they use the best information they had at the time, we're probably looking at close to a decade before you max out your physique. But that's also not the question that was asked. You know, when do you first start to look good and have you put on a fair amount of muscle and does your family start to go, oh, wow, you really, you're doing this weightlifting thing. You know, they do that little curl motion <laughs> at Thanksgiving, you know. That that happened to me within six months, you know. Um, I, I put on 15, 20 pounds of muscle in, 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 in my first six months to a year and that drastically changed my physique. And that is the, the largest change I saw and w- will ever see in my physique from a pure muscle building standpoint. And now as far as the most drastic change visually, that's when you go through a contest prep. And that's actually losing fat and losing muscle. So it's not even the right conversation. And I can understand. I don't even think it's a continuum. I think it's two people talking about two different things uh, and then arguing, which, you know, that's most arguments. So um, and another way to look at it, too, is that if you have the perspective of a competitive athlete putting on one pound or keeping one pound, or getting 1% leaner in terms of body fat. That is an almost non-visible change when you're wearing street clothes and you're out in the meeting or you go to a party uh, or when you're dating, uh, Which so it doesn't matter. Um, but when you're on stage competing, that can put you back two or three placings, you know? And I think there's, there's a thing in statistics called, uh, and depending on, on which paradigm of statistical thought you're using, uh, it's called different things, but it's, a, for example, a minimum clinical difference or the smallest worthwhile change. Um, and these are uh, basically, you subjectively set this amount or you base it off the standard deviation of, of a given sample and you decide what's the amount of change that matters and it's context dependent. So for example, if you're talking about how much do you need to reduce your 100 meter sprint time uh, to place higher in the Olympics, my God, we're talking about less than tenth of a second, you know? That's something that you can't even clock if you're doing hand timing with a fast person and you need electronic timers to do, but might drop you a full metal count on the podium. And, you know, I think that's something people forget is that if you take like the top five sprinters in the world and you take their times at different points in the year and different peaking cycles or just take a bad day for Usain Bolt and a good day for someone else and you put them together the metal count shifts, shifts, shifts around pretty consistently. And that is very different than saying, hey, how long would it take me to get really fast? You know, the first time I ran on the track, I ran a 14 second 100 meters. How do I get down to, to sub, sub 12, which, which, you know, for any all intents and purposes is fast. It's not a sub 10, you know, that's big difference. 
and then you know making the the final 10% improvement is going to be the difference from even getting to Olympic trials. You know what I'm saying? So um, yeah, you're looking at smaller and smaller changes as you approach the uh, your your peak potential. It's an asymptote, but those smaller and smaller changes are being compared against other people who are making smaller and smaller changes. So now they become big relative changes. Um, and there's a lot of ways they can occur. So for example, I remember Jeff, um, and he was doing a lot more things than wrong, a lot more things right than wrong uh, when when he was competing on his own before he hooked up with 3D Muscle Journey. He got on stage just under 160 pounds in 09 when he got his pro card. And just now competing this year, he was close to 170. So did he put on 10 pounds of muscle? No, he kept 10 more pounds of muscle in the dieting process. So there's a lot more things that go into the end result. But it did take him years and years and years of learning and trial and error to figure out how to do that in his diet for that to exist. Um, So if we're talking about the raw physiological process of maxing out anabolism in muscle cells, sure. You know, four years of time and and you have all, all the biggest muscles on the planet. But if we talk about being a human in life and trying to get to the the peak potential of, of maxing out your physique naturally, yeah, we're probably realistically might be looking at 20 years uh, in some cases. So they're two different answers. And I think you just need to know your audience. I chimed into the conversation, like I sort of said the same thing that, uh, listen, like um, whether <laughs> the highest amount of muscle mass you can carry around versus your best look are very separate conversation. Like if we want the most amount of muscle mass, we're just, we're just you know, bulk up to 30% body fat or whatever. And then we'll have the most amount of muscle mass per se on our frame, but that's not really going to help our aesthetic goals, so to speak. So like you said, it's just a different conversation. Absolutely. Okay, so moving on the um, experience spectrum, so to speak, let's say we did get past that stage where we uh, have been bitten by the iron bug and now we do love lifting. What I noticed, uh, especially with new lifters, especially with someone who, um, unfortunately, I know many people in person who have become sort of that way. Maybe they had some sort of emotional or I don't want to call it mental issue, let's say, you know, life issues that weren't really happy about. And then they found the gym, um, mostly women and uh, now that they found this outlet they sort of went to this other extreme where the gym has become their temple and their existence basically and they are the i wouldn't call them beginners but basically women who have been lifting for a year but they are seven days a week at the gym two hours per day they only eat clean in quotation marks like their entire existence revolves around the gym and I also know examples where a person like that, perhaps she got, I'm thinking of someone right now, and she sort of got sick for a month or two and she lost, I don't know, 10 pounds. And she basically went to depression, like, oh my God, I used to look that way. And now I'm back up to almost ground zero. And she was devastated. And, um, you know, I think, again, this can be exaggerated by Instagram. And I don't know if you follow Stephanie Buttermore. Mm-hmm. So I haven't really been following her journey closely, but Abel has linked me to some of her posts. And I apologize in advance if I get the details wrong, but from what I gathered, what has happened is that she sort of maintained this artificially lean physique for years and then basically just to, you know, 
keep up this image that she felt like she had to maintain or very lean, you know, fit girl, hashtag fit femme. And now she just became fed up and um, she sort of went into how, you know, she was constantly hungry and basically starved, well, not necessarily starving, but basically underfed for like um, years. And she was at the lower body fat level than her body would have wanted to settle at. And basically it was all for appearance's sake. And I think that's not uncommon. I I would, if I had to guess, I would say that that's probably a higher percentage of the whole Instagram fitness community than we would like to uh, admit. So again, I would like to hear your opinion. Like how can we avoid, um, now that we've gotten into this whole fitness lifestyle, how can we avoid letting it become our entire existence and letting our physique basically overtake our entire or letting our identity you know sort of merge with the way we look because obviously anything can come you know you can get sick you can have some sort of life circumstance that prevents you from lifting for a couple of months and like i said the consequences can be devastating for some people it's a great question i like how you framed it at the end too because yeah when you were talking about stephanie and you said um just to look a certain way i think that almost uh, it really undervalues what's really going on there. And she's one of many who has struggled with this. And I really think it's, it's, uh, it's awesome that she's being um, so transparent about it and, and showing where she's been and what she's trying to do and the psychology behind it. Um, and so, so, for example, if we look at it purely as just, oh, we're, we're maintaining a a leaner physique than is, you know, like, like you said, an artificially leaner physique, which requires this constant state of restraint, simply just to look a certain way. It almost takes away the piece of why. Why do we have such a strong drive to look a certain way? And that goes to what you said about self-identity and meaning and uh, social acceptance and peer acceptance and belonging to a group and having an identity. All these things are at the core of it. It's not just simply like, yeah, I want to look good in the mirror, you know? And um, if you believe that to be accepted as a woman or accepted as a bodybuilder or attractive as a man or a good mate or a good partner or part of the, the, the club of lifters, you know, do you even lift? Like that really is a saying, do you look like you lift? And if you don't look like you lift, guess what? You don't even lift. And it's a joke. It's a meme. But it's really saying, hey... If you don't look like you lift, you might as well not be lifting. And I think that's just kind of gets to the heart of how shitty the culture can be. You know, uh, there's really amazing things about the lifting culture. Don't get me wrong. I love it. It's uh, it's my people. Um, but if someone walks up to you and says, do you even lift? What they're really saying is that the process of lifting, the act of lifting weights, all the benefits you get from it, the performance, the health, uh, the mental changes, the challenges you put yourself through, your personal story, none of that matters. What actually defines whether you lift or not is if you look like you do. And how shitty is that? When you really, really think about it, it's saying that none of these values that come from lifting matter, only what actually happens. So if you get old, if you get sick, guess what? You have no value. That's basically what at the core of that message. And I think that's why it's so important, going back to what I said before, uh, to, to really have intentionality and self-awareness and to understand your internal motivation. 
and to whatever reason you initially got into lifting to find more meaning in it to 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 realize that the small the changes you get to your physique is is like it might have been the entire reason you originally got into it but man the uh the transformative process you can get from lifting from any activity in life you can find so much more about yourself and you can self-define your own story and your own journey uh, you can make meaning from something as as ridiculous as as picking things off the floor or in our competitors cases you know flexing in fake tanner after shaving our bodies on stage um, that can be uh, you know a a transformative journey um, picking things up and putting them down you know like all the strange things we primates who populate this planet do none of them have any more meaning than what we put into them and if we choose to put into the meaning that it only matters what you look like based on your lift, that can really mess people up. And I think, um, you know, I'm glad Stephanie is, is showing voice to that and showing the experience of it. I think um, it's really important for people to understand that that obsessive nature, that need for control uh, that I talked about that I had and that, you know, you, you had to some degree and that we see a lot of people who are driven to start lifting weights and manipulating their diet that gets them into it, that's a great gateway, but it's a double-edged sword. You know, the obsessive nature I have uh, is both the key to my success and the key to my potential burnout and failure. It's the reason why my wife had a, uh, an ultimatum discussion with me after my first competitive season saying, hey, this isn't healthy. You're not doing this in a way that's, that, that, that's conducive to your like, long-term sanity. And I didn't sign up for this. And that was a big realization for me after my 07 season that, man, I, I took this way too far. I was crazy. Um, and it's very difficult to see when you're in it because when you have an obsessive nature and you think you're bending your entire will towards improving this one thing in your life or this one aspect of you, probably because you're seeing it as your identity, um, then you think that all your effort and all your energy needs to go into it. And you forget that there's only so much objective energy that can go into something. There's only so many variables you can maximize. And when you start to then apply way more resources to something than can even be applied to it, it simply takes away other resources that could go to other aspects of your life. And the, uh, the baby gets thrown out with the bathwater, if you will, proverbially. You know, what more can you do than eating an appropriate diet, training hard for an appropriate amount of time, and getting in enough sleep, you know, uh, being stressed and not being, you know, a well-adjusted human or trashing all of your social relationships. So you don't have the support network of your colleagues or uh, finding a job that, that allows you to, to skip out every three hours to eat that eventually gets you fired or won't get you a raise so that it's harder to pay the bills. So you're more stressed out that actually hurts your performance. All these things actually from your obsession become barriers um, you end up messing up your own life and your own mental sanity, which ends up hurting your performance. Uh, I've seen a ton of competitors who go quote unquote all in, and then they don't compete after their first or second season again, because it's just too much. So one thing at 3D Muscle Journey that we really try to emphasize is that we're not here to maximize this season. We're here to give you the longest career possible if you want it in competitive physique or strength sport. And you have to take that that you have to back up not just a few steps, but probably a few miles and go, wait a minute, what's sustainable for me long-term? What really gets me to where I want to go? What are my actual values? And do I have intrinsic value as a human? 
do I have intrinsic value as Eric beyond just simply being a bodybuilder? And that might be how I'm self-identifying now. It might be a part of me, but it's not me. I existed before I started bodybuilding, you know, um, and all of my personality characteristics might lead me to be a great member of this tribe of bodybuilders or, or physique athletes or, or what have you, uh, recreational or competitive. That might be some, some really important, cool things, but it doesn't fundamentally change me from being Eric, who has intrinsic value, to now Eric, who only has value as a bodybuilder. And I do think it becomes, when it becomes part of your identity, um, that is when there is more risk. Because if you get hurt, you're not only just losing your ability to participate in your sport of choice or something you really enjoy, you're losing you. And I think that can make some really poor decisions that can lead to some true existential crises. And there's a lot of research out there on what's called athletic identity. Uh, when it looks at basically forced retirement and athletes and how do they cope. If you see yourself primarily as a football player and you blow out your ACL and you can no longer play football, then what does that mean about you? Who are you? You know, And that's a, that's a question that's really important to ask. But when you're not prepared to ask it, <laughs> it can be a pretty uh, de depressing and stressful process. So I think um, you touched on a lot of good things there. I think it's important to uh, keep a sense of self, uh, have a sense of self-worth. As my colleague Alberto Nunez says, diversify your happiness portfolio. You know, do more things in life that, uh, like if you don't, don't limit yourself to just being you as a lifter. Um, like if that's what you love, great. Like for example, I really just, that's just my everything. But that, but I have it as a coach. I have it as an academic. I have it as an athlete in like four different sports. Um, I have a community that I've built from it. Um, if I was paralyzed tomorrow, I would still be able to be engaged with the, the iron community as, as a coach, as a thinker. Uh, and I would still find meaning in life and, and love it, even though all my muscle would atrophy away. I would still be someone who is part of the iron game. Um, and I think that's the kind of perspective that is probably a little more sustainable and a little more resilient and less precarious. Uh, to the, the curveballs life will throw your way. So I think that that's a big piece of, of everything you're talking about there. Uh, you need to know your why, and you need to have that self-awareness, and you need to know your motivations, and you need to have intrinsic self-worth, uh, or that, that sword that allows you to, to cut right to the heart of things and push very hard and be obsessive when it's appropriate and achieve things that require a ton of discipline and dedication. Uh, it will be double-edged, and it will cut you on the backswing. Yeah, so many good points. And uh, I feel like we could talk for another three hours and still barely scratch the surface on this. So on the identity front, I want to talk about something that has been linked, you know, has always been part of the bodybuilding sphere, but lately has been perhaps, <laughs> sadly, even a larger, from what I see, a larger part. And it hasn't been the re for the reasons originally it has been developed for, and I'm talking about, you know, the whole anabolic or the enhanced side of things. Because, you know, I think you will agree that way back, people simply took them because, hey, they felt like, listen, I want to compete and to compete the best. That's just what we had to do. Like natural bodybuilding wasn't really too popular. I don't even know if it was a thing or not. Maybe 20 years ago or something like that, 30 years ago. But nowadays, like, like I said, I, I work in a gym and the reasons people take like steroids and the years and the experience levels, 
after which they take them is just sad. Like, just to give an example, like, when I started lifting in 2011, um, like, I kid you not, like, a couple of months into it, like, there was a guy who said to me, listen, don't you want to take them stuff? Like, look around. He showed me, like, three guys, listen. He was like, look, that guy has been taking for, like, I don't know, six months. That guy has been on for, like, a year. Look how big he is. And the other guy, the really big one, he's been for, like, three years, man. Look at him. Like, look how big he is. Like, think about it. And I was like, uh, nah, I don't really have the money and I'm not really interested. I'm sure it, it's not really safe. So I think I skip. And he was like, are you crazy? Like, do you know how long it will take you to, you know, look good, like, without him? <laughs> like, that's the mentality many, many people have. Like, it's not, I want to compete on a high level. I'm good at this. I love this. But I want to also compete and excel at this sport. I will take them because it is what it is part of the sport. It's um, I'm too lazy or I don't want to work for five years or 10 years. I want the results now or I want to look like this guy who has been lifting for like 10 years, but I want to achieve it in a year. And they basically, you know, start using stuff, obviously, without any knowledge or with very little knowledge or um, without any medical supervision or blood tests or stuff like that. So basically, basically irresponsibly. And the other side is, especially in Romania, I don't know <laughs> if this is the same in the, now you're in New Zealand or if it was the same way in the US like most personal trainers in my city like they are pretty much juiced and their only qualification or let's just say um, credentials or way of marketing themselves is basically the way they look and I can't tell I couldn't tell you how many people I know who have pretty much had zero tangency with with the gym like they started lifting they started juicing and now suddenly they're a trainer and a coach. And it's just sad on, on many, many fronts. So I threw a lot at you. It wasn't really a question. I know it just, you know, my thoughts are on the whole topic. Um, just let me know if you agree, if, you, if you've seen the same, sort of you had the same experience, if you think that it's the same over there or it's just really a Romanian or European thing because um, I know it's not just Romania, but I, it might be just a European thing. Uh, what do you think about this? Well, it's definitely going to be different in different cultures uh, and different regulation and uh, different costs. But um, I think even if it's a, a lot less prominent, that, that exact description you gave in other countries, you will still find those same pockets and gyms and motivations. Um, and so, like, 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 for example, I think there's a ton of trainers in New Zealand and the United States who are not using anabolic steroids, you know like the entire yoga community, you know, a lot of them are certified trainers, um, you know, group exercise trainers, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so yeah, whether we're talking about personal trainers in the weightlifting community, whether we're talking about gyms that cater to group X classes or lifters, uh, whether we're talking about countries where it's illegal or not, you know, it's very, very rare in certain parts of Europe, like Scandinavia, the Scandinavian countries, it's really rare to find people who use anabolic steroids and uh, in some cases, you can even the gym can actually do testing of its members randomly, um, and the cultures are very anti-drug. In others, they're very accepting. Um, some countries it's illegal. Some countries it's uh, illegal to sell, but legal to take. Some countries you can, uh, you know, walk down the street. And I've done a lot of traveling. People just will look at you, see that you lift, and uh, a pharma, uh, you know, a pharmacy person out front will be like, "Hey, would you like some?" And just rattle off a bunch of different anabolic steroids at you. Um, and uh, sometimes you can walk into a place without a prescription and just get it. Or if you know the right person, it's very easy. Um, 
in other places, it's it's quite difficult. You need to know the right connect, and the, the punishments are quite severe, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So it does change. Uh, it's very different country to country, community to community. But I think one thing that's really important to remember is just like someone who is entirely focused on the outcome for lifting and doesn't really enjoy it, who is natural, is probably not going to stick with it. The same can be said if you're on anabolic steroids. I can't tell you how many people I've met who, A, you wouldn't know they're on anabolic steroids if they didn't tell you because they aren't putting in the kind of effort that would even get them good natural gains. Um, but 10 years from now, I highly doubt they're going to be doing it. They're going to find, find, find something else and probably for their for their betterment. Um, and it's the same reason people will buy supplements and barely even train or have a gym membership but only train six months out of a 10-year period like you were talking about before. Is they don't really enjoy it. Like... You know, if their response to you saying, no, I'm good is, are you crazy? Don't you know, know how long it'll take? Like, it's like, you know, if, if we're talking about rock climbers, right? Someone who actually loves rock climbing isn't going to go, are you crazy? Why don't you just take an elevator? <laughs> like, I'm, like I, I'm enjoying climbing the rock. What's, what are you talking about? So I think that the difference, and not, not to say that everyone who takes anabolic steroids doesn't actually like lifting. It's just like, for example, you know, when we had uh, John Meadows and Mike Isertel on Iron Culture to talk about mm -hmm. this, we shared a lot of the same loves. It's just they're they're climbing a, a mountain with a, with a higher peak, you know, and uh, it's another way to look at it. I talked to a, a, a older competitor, competitor back in 09 who gave me a lot of props and he was an enhanced bodybuilder and he was like, hey, man, I just look at it as the difference between like NASCAR and stock car racing, different fuels. And I was like, I like that. You know, we're both race car drivers. But yeah, there's a lot of people who take anabolic steroids for the same reasons they would take, you know, CBD oil or buy a, a waist trainer or something like that. It's it's a quick fix. It happens to be an effective quick fix, but it's also a drug. It has side effects, and if done incorrectly, it can it can cause acute or even long-term side effects, and it can have neurological effects. It can uh, it can depending on what you're taking and the dosage, it can put you at a greater risk of of having you know heart issues or metabolic issues. Um, so yeah, it's not, definitely not something to do casually, but a lot of people do it, um, to tie this into something you brought up earlier about, uh, you know, comparison, um, you know, the whole natty or not movement, like the, the process of seeing someone and then assessing visually whether or not you think they're on gear completely comes down to self-comparison. Um, you know, like you assess well, not not you. Most people will make that knee-jerk reaction of whether or not they think someone visually is on gear or not based on whether they think it's possible for them to accomplish it. Yeah. Hmm. That's really what it comes down to. Um, and, that's, and, that's, and it goes right back to Instagram. If you're looking at a picture, does this person actually inspire you uh, or, or do their posts demotivate you? And when you have the easy out of saying, oh, they're on gear, it's a sidestep to being demotivated. Um, and that was why that person messaged me about the uh, the people from before anabolic steroids were were around. They were demotivated because that wasn't an out, you know, or at least it was part of it. And you wouldn't believe the comments that I get, um, you know, trying to f justify some way that someone from the 1800s was using performance-enhancing drugs. Like, well, I, I joke about time traveling, but I've heard stuff like, well, weren't they using, uh, you know, methamphetamines? Uh, and I'm like, 
do you think methamphetamines build muscle? <laughs> like, like let, let's pretend they all were using methamphetamines and it was widespread and that anyone sort of lifting weights, even though it was incredibly rare, was taking meth on a regular basis. Um, a, not true. Um, but B, that wouldn't help them. You know, like, like it's, and, and they're people who are probably otherwise logical in their lives, but will go through any kind of hoop they can to protect themselves from that demotivation, that that pain, you know, of, of going, oh man, maybe I can't accomplish that. Because that's when you have your identity of lifting and when lifting is really important for you. And the only motivation you have is to look a certain way. And you're in that, do you even lift culture? Where the defining characteristic of being a part of this tribe that you want so desperately to find acceptance in is looking like you lift. If that's all it is, then yeah, you, you, you'll go through whatever you need to to believe you can get further. And when you see someone who has, uh, you know, achieved something you don't think you can achieve, the best way to protect yourself is to say that uh, you can achieve that, but they achieve something else. That's that's different. I'm going to change the goalpost. They're on, they're on anabolic steroids, you know, and uh, it's not anything objective, you know, it's, 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 it's completely an emotional response. And you can see sometimes when someone on, on the other side will try to use logic and go, well, well, hold on, like, you know, this person's only 160 pounds at 5'9". Um, they've been on the stage at the same way for five years, and they're just really lean. You don't actually know what you're talking about. Like, and they're like, oh, they're, they're, use, they're using diuretics. And like, that's a random picture of them in their living room. You think they take diuretics on a Thursday when they're eight weeks out? Like, what are you talking about? You know, like, so the kind of things I've seen people say, it is so obvious that it is because of the same thing we've been talking about, that if your only motivation is to look a certain way, if it's all about getting from point A to point B, and you have no enjoyment in the process, not only will it lead to these unhealthy behaviors we've talked about, uh, the depression, uh, the person getting sick, uh, having an eating disorder, having an unhealthy relationship with the gym, training too hard, overtraining, hurting relationships, um, you know, keeping yourself unhealthily lean for years, and then having to figure out how to eat like a a normal person again, uh, or taking anabolic steroids and you've only, only been lifting weights for a few weeks and poo-pooing the idea of doing it naturally because it takes too long. All of those things come down to not having any meaning or value in the process or the intrinsic value to it. Uh, and it comes down to just doing it to look a certain way. And that's unfortunate. I think the majority of those people either will not stick with it and just find something else, which is good. Because honestly, if you only do that really unhealthy behavior for a couple of years, awesome. It won't it won't won't break you too bad. But if you're if you manage to force yourself to do anabolic steroids, to hate yourself, to follow social media, to get sick, to overtrain, to ruin your relationships for five to ten years, it's gonna do a lot more damage. So it's it's almost a good thing when you meet people like that. You know, you just you smile, you nod, you wish them the best, and you hope that they burn themselves out quick, not over the process of ten years where they really ruin their life. Uh, and that they fi- do find something that allows them to actually be engaged for intrinsic reasons. can definitely be a very destructive path, the whole anabolic usage. And like you said, it um, obviously the responsible usage is the rarest. The, um, <laughs> the other two options usually are that either they quit altogether or they just get, you know, hooked forever like i haven't used but i would imagine it would be like you know driving a race car and then trying to go back to uh you know road legal (laughs) speeds you can either i guess accept it that it's it's been temporary and get used to you know (laughs) traveling at regular speeds or you can just 
live a very high speed life and <laughs> probably crash into a wall <laughs> pretty early on. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think people who who adopt performance enhancing drugs as as a long term lifestyle thing, that's different. And I think that there's a certain number of choices that go with that. And you are potentially sacrificing some of the the health benefits uh, of, of lifting and taking on actual health risks. But I think if, if you find more meaning and value uh, in, say, competing at a high level or uh, like I, it doesn't make a lot of sense to be a lifelong performance enhancing drug user if you're not actually competing to me. Um, but I, 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 that's also my own personal perspective. So, yeah, I, I, I can I have a lot more of an easy time understanding fellow competitive bodybuilders on the enhanced side of the fence than I do someone who is. Uh, recreationally taking anabolic steroids to look a certain way but you know if if maybe you can do it responsibly and you want to look a little more muscular and you don't have great genetics and it's just something uh that, that you do and and it's a risk you accept uh, sure you know but uh, but like you said a lot of the examples you gave are not people doing it in a informed or responsible way and a lot of the times it's not people who are actually enjoying the process of lifting and finding it and, you know, their, their, their physical activity and physical culture is not a thing for them. It's just, I'm doing what I need to do to look a certain way. And I think that that probably begs the question of, you know, do you have self-worth? Where do you find meaning? And, um, you know, do you see your body as just a suit you're wearing? Which I think is kind of an unfortunate relationship to have with your body. You brought up, you know, athlete, athletic or athlete identity. Like, I think the best examples are the people who have managed to you know retire and stay retired because i you know i watch ufc and mixed martial arts just as a, a hobby of mine and so it's so sad when you see people who you know have retired and then they come back at like 38 or 40 because simply they they have identified themselves as being this fighter and they just can't they just can't can't find their 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 way in the world i think and i think the the happiest uh or the best examples are people like, you know, Dorian Yates, who pretty much have said, you know, I've been a bodybuilder and now I'm not anymore and I stopped using and I'm just a regular human being. I enjoy biking and being active, but I don't have to maintain this look or Jay Cutler, you know, someone like that. And I remember <laughs> I remember watching a, or reading some comments on Instagram. Jordan Peters was saying how... You know, he will he, he's trying to one more push to get his IBB Pro card. And uh, someone asked him, like, uh, so what will you do after that? And he was like, I don't know, I'll be 160 pounds and happy. And they were like, what? It was like, why the hell am I supposed to maintain like 300 pounds if I'm not competing? Like, what's the point? I'm just pretty much every single day, I'm just shortening my lifespan <laughs> for for something that I'm not really pursuing anymore. I mean, what's the point? Like, it's just a, a means to an end. And once that... Uh, and has been fulfilled, then I just go back to being a regular human being and just lift weights for the pleasure of lifting weights. Yeah, I, I, I do feel feel there are some, even for the competitors, uh, like we're talking about, who have a similar mindset to me and do this for a deeper meaning. There is unfortunately probably a a shorter career span uh, if you're if you're enhanced and trying to compete at the highest level. Um, you know, trying to do what is required to be a, you know, a Ronnie Coleman or a Jay Cutler or a, any of these Olympians, it takes more out of your body. And, you know, and it's, it's rare to see someone who's competitive in their forties on the Olympia stage, 
Um, you know, there are obviously exceptions like Dexter Jackson. Hats off, man. It's amazing. Um, but you will see a ton of people in their 40s. Um, and like I was just at WNBF Worlds in New York. And man, there's, it's rare to see someone on the, on the world stage among in the pros who isn't at least 30. Uh, they're out there um, for sure. But man, like the 30 to 30 to 50 is the prime age for competitive natural bodybuilders to be on stage. And I can think of a ton of examples of very high level natural bodybuilders who are still just as competitive, even, even approaching 50, which is pretty neat. And I, I think that's, yeah, I mean, I like that. I, I see myself probably competing in iron sports until I physically can't, you know, but never stop lifting until I, well, physically can't or don't exist. And I, uh, but yeah, for sure. It's a different, it's a different ball game when you are, uh, using copious amounts of anabolics. That's for sure. All right. So that was episode 41 of the Muscle Engineer podcast with Eric Helms. Hope you enjoyed it. I hope you find it valuable. I hope you were able to take away some gems or nuggets of wisdom and that you will be able to implement into your own life and training. So as usual, I want to end the episodes with some of my top, uh, you know, insights and key lessons I took away from this whole conversation. And um, the first one is something that Eric so simply pointed out. (laughs) You know, when I asked him, why do people quit the gym? He was like, it's very simple. They don't enjoy it. And uh, as as simple as that sounds, it's very true. And you know, um, actually, I I got reminded of this yesterday when I was I went to the gym and uh, did some cardio. And you know, I was as I was walking on the incline, uh, I was thinking that, you know, I'm walking here, and yes, I understand the physiological benefits. That's what I do them. Um, I understand that you know it will improve my cardiovascular conditioning, and it's good for heart health and all that stuff. But I was like, I'm not enjoying this. I feel absolutely no pleasure or reward from it. Now, I'm not saying that you would you you would have to necessarily feel a sense of pleasure necessarily from training, but you should be able to get some sort of enjoyment out of it, you know. And I was thinking that my goodness, if I had to walk on an incline for like hours and hours every single day, I would not do it. <laughs> I just simply would not do it. I just I just find it boring. Like there's there's no rhyme or reason to it for me. Like I'm just going, I'm going, I'm going and I get nowhere. Like I'm like yes, I'm listening to a podcast, I'm watching a video or something, so the time passes and I do it because I have to sort of, you know, in my head. But that's the exact problem. Like I feel like I'm doing it because I have to. I'm not doing it because I enjoy it. And uh, I guess that's the most, uh, that's the first uh, lesson here. You have to find a way of training that actually not only gives you benefits, but also you get some sort of sense of enjoyment out of it. Like, otherwise you won't stick to it. I am biased, of course. I think that lifting weights gives people a sense of enjoyment in the sense that you know, there is the subjective stuff, you know, the pump and all that. But that's, I think the biggest reward is simply getting stronger and seeing that you, you know, you are able to lift weights that you haven't been able before. And I think that's, uh, in and of itself, very rewarding. But um, listen, if you don't enjoy it, then you don't have to do it. Like, 
to find something else. The important stuff is to be active. And yes, Eric and I are biased towards lifting weights, of course. But ultimately, it's all about finding something that you love. I mean, go do some martial arts. Go do some jiu-jitsu. <laughs> That's actually going to help you if you if you get into some sort of trouble. Uh, you know, because having big muscles is not going to save your life necessarily. Jiu-jitsu might. Now, the second one is about the whole social media stuff. And again, Eric has put it so eloquently when he said, think about it like, um, what sort of uh, feelings do you get when you when you watch these people on, on Instagram or whatever? Like, do you get this sense that, oh yes, I'm motivated, um, I'm inspired by them and uh, now I can go work on improving myself and being the best version of myself? Or do you see them, do you watch them and do you think, oh my God, they are so perfect. I will never be able to look like them. Why am I so small? Why am I so weak? Why am I so fat? Why am I so this? Why am I so that? Because if it's the second, you need to get rid of the shit. Like that stuff is not healthy and it will mess with your head. And I think that ties into the tail end of the episode where we discuss steroids. And I think that's the perfect um, mindset or headspace that people are in when they start using steroids for no for no reason other than you know trying to uh, end up looking like someone they, they they inspire or feeling inadequate and thinking that you know injecting some stuff will make them more worthy or will will raise their value as a human being which is not the case so i think those two insights or key ideas were my biggest lessons from this episode. I think I'll end the episode here. As always, thank you for listening. I don't take any of this for granted, so I am very, very grateful for all of this, all of the support I get. As always, if you enjoyed these episodes, please share it with a friend. Um, Share it on your story. Tag me on Instagram, all that good stuff. And speaking of Instagram, if you're not following me on Instagram, I would really like to grow my presence there. So, if you enjoy these and perhaps you haven't checked out my profile, please do. I post a lot of stories. Some are educational, some are simply funny. So I hear. And um, I also do Instagram TV videos, which I plan on doing more of. So, you know, if you would follow me there and you would leave me some feedback, I would know that the the EGTV uh, videos are actually very received and... Uh, that would be another reason for me to do more of them. So I've rambled long enough. Thank you. And I will see you all next week.